it was a cold, snowy, I think February, maybe March. It was a school day, and my friend Brett had invited me to come spend the afternoon with him. And Brett's dad was the middle school band teacher. So the plan was that we would ride the bus from Lowell Elementary School. That's where all the fourth graders in my town went. And we were going to ride the bus up to the middle school, where we would then walk across the parking lot to the band building, connect with his dad, and he would then take us to Brett's house, where we would then play for the rest of the afternoon. Well, as we're making our way across the parking lot, this seventh grader named CJ decided to have a little fun with these little fourth graders. And he started throwing snowballs at us. And we're trying to make our way, and, and he's blocking it, and we're getting pelted. And so we dash behind some cars. And we're sitting there like, what do we do? And Brett's like, I'm going to get him. So Brett's like, all right, I'm going to get a snowball. You find out where he's at. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pelt him. So I stick my head out around the car, and I got pelted with a snowball right in the forehead. But something was wrong. Because this wet, slushy snow didn't just obliterate against my forehead, I felt something really hard. Uh, my forehead began to immediately swell. And it turned out that CJ had put a rock inside of the snowball. Now, rocks can be good, and rocks can be bad. When they're stuck inside a snowball, they're bad. This is why when you may have a relationship that's not doing very well, your, your marriage, a dating relationship, and you might then say that it's on the rocks or that it's rocky because we know that rocks can be bad. But yet also, rocks can be good. If you've ever gone to a great concert or maybe you really like roller coasters or maybe you had a great first date and when asked how the experience was, you say, it rocked. It, it was good. Well, today, we're going to see Peter talk about rocks. And we're going to see that some rocks, in the spiritual sense, are good, and some rocks are bad. In fact, the way we're going to look at it today is we're going to talk about walking rocky paths. And some, one of these rocky paths, Peter's going to make it very clear, it's a good path. This is the path he's going to want us to walk on. But there's a path that we often walk on, a different rocky path, and it's bad. It, it can cause us to trip. And during this series, we've been running with the John Maxwell quote that everything worthwhile is uphill. Uh, but John also says that while we have uphill desires, we have downhill habits. And today we're going to see that one of these rocky paths, it's bad. It hurts because it's a downhill habit. So as we get ready to head into Peter, let's pray. Father, uh, as we come to your scriptures, I pray that our attention would be on you and what you have to say. As we look at these rocky paths, that you would speak loud and clear to us. And for us to be honest today, which path is it that we're on? Which path do we try to walk upon? And which path is it that's tripping us up? And so, Father, would you just speak to us now? And you, may you help us to get onto the path that leads to life, that leads to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray together. Amen. All right, hopefully you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone. Open it up to 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible uh, or you don't even know where 1 Peter is, don't worry. I've got it on the screen uh, for you today. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 today. We've already done a couple of weeks in 1 Peter. We've, we've uh, covered chapter 1. We're now coming to chapter 2, and we're going to do verses 1 through 12. And today, how I want to handle it is I want to kind of do 
the whole, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to kind of jump around it. So I know it's kind of a long passage. Stick with me, though. I think you guys can do it. I, by the way, the average American, I don't know if you've seen the commercials, the average American has the, the attention span of like eight seconds. All right, so now there's a car that has lane assist and braking assistance so that when your mind wanders, you're still safe in your car. All right, by the way, goldfish have an attention span of nine seconds. So we have uh, gone backwards in evolution, I guess. All right, so this is going to take longer than eight seconds. So stick with me. Verse one, First Peter chapter two. So put away... All malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, obviously, Peter is not talking about true rock paths, all right? I'm using this as an illustration today, but I see him laying out two paths, all right? The first rocky path I'm going to call the selfish path. The selfish path. This is the path of least resistance. This is the path that we just know naturally. We don't need any sort of trail map for this path. But the danger with this path, while it's easy to walk, is that it just very naturally winds us downhill. These are the downhill habits. And these selfish paths, they hurt a couple of people. The first group that it hurts is that it hurts others. It hurts others. Notice verse 1. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He lists five things here that hurt our relationships with others. Notice first, malice. If you look up the definition of malice, you'll, you'll see it says that it means wrongful intention, like wrongful purpose. It's, it's doing evil on purpose. All right? it, it's, just, it, it's just mean. It's cruel. It's malice. But most of us would probably say, Okay, yeah, I think you should put away malice. I, I don't do malice. I mean, most of you do not intentionally try to hurt people. And yet we do. 
like in our worst of moments, when someone's really hurt us, we can think all sorts of mean, evil things. We want the worst for them. So sometimes we do commit malice, whether we want to admit it or not. But malice hurts relationships. Next one, he says there, is deceit. If you're deceiving someone, you're lying. If you've ever, like, I don't know, gone to a party or, or a function, and you try to act like you're someone that you're not, you've deceived people. If you've ever lied, tried to, like, cover up your own steps, you've deceived and anytime you deceive someone, they now no longer know the real you. And so therefore, they can't have a relationship with you. All they're having is a relationship with the fake you. And therefore, you've hurt the relationship. Deceit hurts. Next, he says, hypocrisy. We all know what hypocrisy is. It's saying one thing, but doing another. And we can't stand it. I mean, I, I hear comments about, well, I, I don't want to go to a church. That church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. And I often have to say, you know, you're right. And everyone's a hypocrite. If you've ever said lying is wrong, and yet you've lied, you're a hypocrite. That makes pretty much 100% of us in this room hypocrites. And yet, hypocrisy hurts. It, it hurts relationships no one wants to be around someone. The, the problem is that when you're a hypocrite, do you admit it? Do you confess it? Or do you slip back to deceit and try and hide it? Act like it's no big deal. I, I know people who, adults, who are not part of church because of the hypocrisy of their parents. I remember one of my neighbors just telling me, like her, her dad standing outside, smoke with the deacons, telling all sorts of great jokes outside the Baptist church, a bunch of dirty jokes. And he looks down at his daughter and says, says don't do this. You know, and she's just looking at him like, what? And he's like, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't do all these things that I'm doing. And she just, she just couldn't stand church because it was just full of a bunch of hypocrites because hypocrisy hurts relationships. And then he says, envy. Uh, if you've been reading the uh, news and notes email that we send out uh, every Thursday, you, you might remember that we're walking through Romans 12 in that email. And in there, one of the verses we came to was, I think it's verse 12, where Paul writes, Hey, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Well, envy causes you to do the opposite because envy causes you to want what someone else has. So when someone else is rejoicing, you're not rejoicing with them. You're actually weeping when they're rejoicing because you wish what they had was yours. So you can't really empathize and rejoice with them. You're committing envy and envy hurts relationships. And then the last one there slander. We all know what slander is. It's speaking ill of others. How many of you have ever had someone slander you or you've heard that they have? Someone's come up and said, did you hear what someone said about you? And then you see that person and you run up and you give them the biggest hug. Yeah, your faces are going like, Aaron, you're, you're crazy. You're, you're nuts. No, when someone slanders you, it repels you. It's like a rock inside of a snowball. It pushes you away. Slander hurts relationships. The selfish path, it hurts others. We often commit malice or hypocrisy or deceit or, or any of these things out of selfishness. We're, we're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to get things our way. But instead, it's hurting. It's hurting these other people and thus it's hurting us. 
But not only does the selfish paths hurt others, it also directly impacts our soul. And that's what Peter says all the way over in verse 11. Skip over there. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this is our third week in 1 Peter. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Peter has used the word exile now three times. We've seen this word once each week. First, he said it all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 1. He talked about his readers being elect exiles. And then last week, we, we kind of just skimmed over it. But in verse 17, he talks about them being in exile. And now here in chapter 2, he talks about them being sojourners and exiles. You start to wonder, perhaps Peter's trying to get something across to us. I, I was listening this week to a pastor named Brian Loritz, um, a sermon that he did out of First Peter. I was just kind of using it to, you know, prepare me for, for teaching. And he said the word exile in the Greek means the close stranger. It's someone who lives close to you, but they're strange to you because of either their, their culture, their background, their, their worldview. And so they're close, but they just, they're strange. They're, they're different. And so when we read the word exile— we often think of, like, especially with our political season right now, I mean, immigration is a big topic. And so we, we're thinking about these things. And so when you read it here in First Peter, I wouldn't blame you one bit if your mind first went to physical exile. Where we're thinking, like, oh, Peter's probably writing to some Jews who are from Israel, but they're now living in Asia Minor. And so it's like they're in exile. But as you're reading through it, you start catching on. I don't think he's talking about physical exile. I think he's talking about spiritual exile. Because you see, his readers, he thought were Christians, Jesus followers. Which meant that when they placed their faith in Jesus, they didn't just go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And they didn't just go from being separated from God to be now adopted by God. They went from being kind of in their own country of sin and selfishness, now into the kingdom of God. Their citizenship changed. And so therefore, their passport was from heaven. And their identity, their home, was with Christ. That meant that their time on earth was like an exile. This means that if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are in exile. This is not your home. Your home is heaven. Your home is with your God, your creator, your father. This is just a time. You're in exile. What this means is that if you follow Jesus, your identity needs to first be that of Christ. You need to realize where your true home is, where your identity rests. And so what that means is that your identity in Jesus has to come before your identity as an American or as your identity as an Iowan or your identity as a husband or a wife or as a parent, as a kid. It's got to come before your identity as a male or or a female. It's got to come before your identity of being white or black or Hispanic or whatever color God gave you. This identity of Jesus has to supersede all of that. Because that's your true home. That's where you ultimately belong. 
And if you go to Revelation, you're going to see it's filled with males and females. It's filled with all tribes, all tongues, all races, all nations. Because they're all banded together under the headship and leadership of Jesus. That's your first identity. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not your home. You were made for another place. That's your identity. The reason Peter's talking about this is that when you live in exile, when you are a close stranger, you sometimes begin to adopt the culture and customs of the world around you. Now, in a physical exile, sometimes that can be sad because you start losing the identity of your home country. But sometimes it's, it's no big deal. Sometimes it just helps make life a little easier. But when it comes to spiritual exile, it can be dangerous. It could be a rocky path, the selfish path. Because as you begin to give in to the culture around you and adopt their ways and their lifestyle, it actually trips you up and it becomes that downhill slope. That's why Peter warns right there in verse 11. He says, so abstain from the passions of the flesh. If someone's not a follower of Jesus, they really can kind of do whatever they want. They, they can kind of follow whatever teaching they want, whatever ideas they have. Right? They really are free to do whatever. And so most people are driven by this desire for happiness. And so they will just go and do whatever they want to make them happy. Now, we kind of have overall some morals, but for the most part, they're just driven by this desire for themselves. They're on the selfish path. And so they just give in to these passions of the flesh. If they want money, they just work hard in their job or Maybe they'll steal. If they just want pleasure, they might just drink a lot or ingest certain things or eat lots of food or, you know, get with certain people. This is what drives them. And Peter's warning them, you're in spiritual exile. Don't give in to the customs of the world. Don't give in to the passions of the flesh. Abstain. Why? Because, he says, those things will wage war against your soul. The spiritual path doesn't just hurt, I mean, sorry, the selfish path doesn't just hurt others, it hurts you. I, I know there have been moments in my life, probably this week, where I've sinned. I, I'll th think something, I'll say something, and maybe no one's around. And so you think, it didn't really hurt anyone. It, it's not a big deal. Peter's pointing out, it hurts your soul. It hurts you. This affects your relationship with God. Because even though you might be in exile, you're just in this life for a time, God is always with you. Always. He loves you. He's there for you. He's working in you. And so the sin, it's not like, ah, no big deal. It wages war against your soul. And so as you start reading there in verse 12, you start getting the sense that, that Peter's starting to call us to a different path. And there in verse 12, he says, So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll actually see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If you're a sojourner, you kind of got to ask yourself, what am I doing with the time I have? Because you're only on this earth for a certain amount of time. There will be a day where you will breathe your last and you'll go home. So what are you going to do with this right now? How are you going to spend the time? Are you just going to walk the selfish path, which hurts others and hurts yourself? Or are you going to walk this other path? This path that Peter says 
actually helps others see what you do. And even if they try to speak evil against you, they can't. Because you live in such a way that you're different. You don't just give in to the customs of the culture around you. They look at you and you're a close stranger. And they can't help but think there's something different about them. And it's so different, they'll actually give praise and glory to God. Today, I'm going to call that path the Jesus path. The Jesus path. Jesus. Sorry, it it must be me. I'm going to stop moving. I'll just stand really still. I think it's my core back here. But uh, verse 4, Peter says, As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, as you begin to walk this path, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Have you ever been on Facebook and you'll see someone like put a picture of their spouse or or maybe their like girlfriend, boyfriend, and they'll say, I love this person. They're so amazing. And they'll say all these great attributes. And they'll say something like this. They'll say, you are my rock. Anyone ever seen that? Okay, thank you. I, for a second there, I was feeling really alone. Like, I see this all the time. I'm, it must just be me. Uh, you know, they'll say that you are my rock. All right? If you have someone like that in your life, I hope you are thanking God and praising God for that person. That, that they are there for you. That they, are, like, in a sense, help you stay steady. That through life's ups and downs, they're always there. That's great. But they're not really supposed to be your rock. Because, all right? And, and keep, don't, don't mishear me. I realize some people, their emotions are like this. They're all over the place. But some people, you kind of wonder if they even have emotions. I mean, they're they're just like steady the whole time. Sometimes you need people like that. Like the world's caving in around you and they're going, okay. You know, it's like, oh, okay, good. You're calm. We'll make this work. Right? Sometimes you need that. But even the most steady of persons still can have a bad day. Sometimes their rockness is more like sand. No matter how firm they seem, they're not made to try and carry all of your weight upon them. Jesus is supposed to be that rock for you. He's the one who never changes. He's the one who will always be there. He's the one who never leaves you, never forsakes you. He is to be your rock. And and Peter defines this rock for us, this stone. First, we see him Describe Jesus as a living stone. A living stone. If you, th- if you think about it, that's a pretty ridiculous idea. Because rocks are deader than a doorknob. I mean, this thing is not living, not breathing. It doesn't drink. It doesn't need sun. It doesn't need food. I mean, this thing needs nothing. It is dead. And yet, Peter says, Jesus is a living stone. There's a purpose in the oxymoron. If you go and study other religions, you'll see that almost all of them were founded by some spiritual leader, some guru who had some really amazing thoughts, some really wise teachings that made sense to the, the, the culture and the world that they were in. And people began to adhere to that teaching and a religion forms. And so that spiritual leader, that guru, in a sense, becomes the rock for that faith. The thing, though, is that that spiritual leader eventually died. And and so the adherents to the religion just are going off what that person left behind. The unique thing about Christianity is that our leader, our spiritual guru, he died, but then he rose again from the dead. He, He still lives because 
the purpose for death was his punishment for sin. But because Jesus never sinned, when he died, he took our punishment for us. And then, because he was God, he could take up his life again. So he's defeated sin. So Jesus is still alive to this day. That's why Peter says he is a living stone. He's still alive. He's this rock you can rely on because he's still here. It isn't just going on his beliefs, on what he taught. It's going on who he is, even to this day. So Jesus is a living stone. Next, you see Peter describes him also as a chosen stone. There at the end of uh, verse 4, a chosen and precious stone. I've already told you one story from fourth grade. I'll tell you another one. Uh, at recess, in the fall and the spring, there was, we'd go outside, and there was this huge grass area, and the boys would just, like, take it over. There'd be, like, 50 of us out there, and we'd play football. Now, I know, normal football, 11 against 11. We didn't care. It'd be 25 against 25. We were all out there. But, as you know, football is played with two teams. And so, somehow, two captains would be selected, and they'd start divvying up all the players. Now, I was a little smaller than most everyone. I wasn't nearly as fast, definitely wasn't as strong. And so, I would just stand there in this horrifying moment, praying, don't pick me last. Please, just don't pick me last. We all want to be chosen. There's something in us that longs for that. Uh, that if you're married, wives, that moment that he got down on his knee, you felt so honored and valued because he chose you. Guys, when she actually said yes, he felt so much relief because she chose you. Isn't it an awesome feeling, parents, when you like come home or you're, you're picking up your kids someplace? They leave the babysitter behind, they leave the TV, they leave their food, they leave whatever they're doing, and they run to the door and they yell, Mommy! Daddy! Like, in that moment, something in you goes, Oh, yes, I'm chosen. Or when you get the job, they said, they, they call you up and they said, Hey, out of all the applicants, you were the best one. When can you start? We like those moments because you're chosen. It means you're valued, you're special, you're unique. Well, Jesus is sometimes called the Messiah. His, we sometimes think of it as his last name, but it's really a title, Christ. That word could be translated the anointed one or the chosen one. Jesus was chosen for the task of leaving aside his godhood to come to earth, to take on human form, to live a sinless life, but to go and die a sinner's death on behalf of mankind. He was chosen for it and he accepted the call. He's unique. He has this special place. But, but as if this isn't enough, as if having a living stone, this oxymoron makes him unique, and being chosen and precious isn't enough, Peter goes one more further. He calls Jesus the cornerstone, and he quotes from the book of Isaiah. It's there in verse 6. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him. Do you hear it? He's not talking inanimate rocks. In him, a person, this stone, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The, uh, in biblical times, when they would build a structure, whether it be a house or a temple, the most important part was laying the cornerstone. 
It, it was off that first stone that you set that would determine the angle. It, it would determine kind of the structure, how sound it would be, how sturdy it would be. Everything was determined off the cornerstone. And so that's why, uh, you know, like if you ever go to a college course, uh, uh, you might take a cornerstone course. It's needed. It's necessary. Like, it determines the angle, the direction of the rest of your college career. Like, you have to take this class first before you can get on to the others. It's a prerequisite. It's the cornerstone. Well, for the Christian faith, Jesus is the cornerstone. You take away Jesus, Christianity crumbles. Now, you might be able to take the rocks and assemble some sort of religion, you know, and there'd be some moral platitudes, but it wouldn't be Christianity. Because Christianity is based upon the person and work of Jesus. He's the cornerstone, the most crucial part of the Christian faith. But not only is he supposed to be the cornerstone of the Christian faith, he's supposed to be the cornerstone of your faith. That if you say, I follow Jesus, he's the cornerstone. The angle of your life is determined upon him. Everything is to be built upon him. That's where you have to sometimes pause and ask yourself, am I really making Jesus the cornerstone of my life? Or have I just tried to make him just another stone in my house? So Jesus, the Jesus path, it's living, it's chosen, it's the cornerstone. It's the most important thing to your life to walk this path. But Peter points out that any rocky path could cause you to trip and stumble. Even the Jesus path. The Jesus path can cause you to stumble. He says it in verse 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If you think back to the time of Jesus, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, and you go into the Gospels, you'll see that there were these Jewish leaders that did not like Jesus. So much so that they were driving and trying to work things to get him killed. They wanted this guy eliminated because he was a threat to them, a threat to their way of life, to the way they're thinking of Judaism. And so they wanted to get rid of him because he caused them to stumble. They were going through life just fine. And then this Jesus guy has to come along and say, hey, you've heard it said, but I tell you. I mean, it's like he's, he's wrecking everything. They're stumbling over him. He was causing offense. And Jesus still causes offense today. If you are in business and power is what matters to you, the selfless ways of Jesus is going to cause you to stumble. If you live for pleasure and it's really all about you, then these selfless, generous ways of Jesus are going to cause you to stumble. You see, if you're trying to walk the Jesus path, but you're trying to walk it like you're on the selfish path, you're going to stumble. That's what Peter says there as he finishes verse 8. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word. God has given us this word. He's given us this gospel. It's to be, our, as we saw in week one, this motivation to climb. And the gospel also teaches how to climb. And now as you're climbing it, if you're trying to walk both paths, you're going to stumble because you're disobeying the word. Instead of trying to live for yourself and put on a Jesus face, instead of trying to be a snowball with a rock buried inside, what you need to do is just 
fully submit, get on the Jesus path, and walk it. And that means as you walk the Jesus path, you begin to look like Jesus. You probably don't realize it, but Peter has been slipping this in throughout his entire passage. He's basically saying you are to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Why do I say that? Well, and answer me. What was the first thing we said about Jesus as a stone? What was the first thing? What? Go ahead. Call it out. You had it. Let me go. Living. All right. He's living. Notice verse five. Peter says, you yourselves like living stone. So he now calls you living. What was the second thing he said about Jesus, the stone? Chosen. chosen. Look at verse nine. But you are a chosen race. And then the third thing, cornerstone. He doesn't say you are to be the cornerstone. You can only have one cornerstone. But notice what he says back in verse five again. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You're a stone built upon Jesus. You're in this house. Jesus begins the church and you are a part of it. And this house is being built with these living chosen stones. You are like Jesus. Peter doesn't stop there though. As if this isn't scandalous enough, he takes it yet a step further. Uh, let's look at verse 9 again and the whole thing. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is a shocking sentence. Because it says, you cannot just make Jesus kind of a side thing. You can't just make him a part of your life. He is to be the central core of who you are, and he totally changes you from the inside out. Here in uh, America, where we have kind of a European model of church, we see a priest, and in our case here at Riverwood, the idea of pastor, as the professional. And they do the ministry because they're the ones who get up front. They will do the teaching. They might lead the worship. They, they will do all these things. And so therefore, they do the ministry. And we sit and we just take it in. We might worship. But that's not what the scriptures teaches. If you were to go back to the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing this letter to this church that's in the city of Ephesus. And as you get to chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, you'll see Paul say that the purpose of these priests, these pastors, the words he uses in, in verse 11 are apostles, prophets, evangelists, uh, uh, pastors, and teachers. He says their role is to equip you. If you proclaim to follow Jesus, he says then you are to do the ministry. These leaders, their role is to equip you to go and do it. And so you are the priests. So you do the ministry. It, uh, the uh, sermon I was listening to this week, another one as I was preparing for this, uh, the, the pastor was pointing out that uh, the, the role of a prophet. Uh, a prophet was someone who God would give a word to and he would bring that word to the people. So in a sense, the prophet was bringing the uh, word, uh, it was bringing, I guess you could say, it was bringing God to the people. But a priest would try to work with the people in a way to help bring the people to God. He was helping prepare the people for worship. He was trying to do what he could to open the door. 
This is why Jesus was called both a prophet and a priest. He, he was a prophet in that he brought the word of God. He taught like no one else ever did. But he didn't just tell them. He opened the door to bring them in. It says that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn in the, in the temple from the top to the bottom. And the Holy of Holies was now open that the presence of God could come out to the people and the people could come into the presence of God. And so... You are a priest who's supposed to go and open the doors for people to come to God. And so that means that when you come here on a Sunday and you greet at the door or, or you're running sound at the table or, or you're back with the kids, you're, you're on the floor, you're trying to open the doors, create an environment where people can come in and worship God. If they already know him, they're coming in eager Maybe they're coming, curious. They're wondering, who is this God? I've heard about this Jesus. Something's not going right in life. Maybe I need something spiritual. And so they're coming. And you are helping create the environment that can open the doors for them to come and worship God. But it doesn't just happen here. It, it can happen at home. If you are a parent and your child asks you a spiritual question, or, or you maybe read the Bible with them at night as you're putting them to bed, you're being a priest. You're helping to bring your kids to God. Or, or maybe you're at work and one of your work coworkers is going through a really difficult time and he or she just begins to open up to you. Your presence is exactly what they need. It's like you're opening a door. You become the conduit for them to begin to come to God. When you go to your growth group and you just begin to open up and share your thoughts, you know, you, you start reading through this and you're like, man, I never saw this before. Your ideas might be exactly what someone else needs and it's going to spark something in them. You've helped create an open door for them to connect deeper with God. Or, or you're in your growth group or maybe you're just hanging out with someone and they're, they're sharing a tough time and you just say, hey, can I pray for you? And you may not feel like a, a professional prayer. You, you may feel like, oh, I stumble over my words, but you just are moved. Like you care for this person. So you pray. You're being a priest. You're opening the door for them to connect with their maker. So that's what I want to ask you today. Who do you need to go and pastor? Who do you need to be a priest to? Who is it that you need to go and serve? Who do you need to go and, and pray with? Who is it that you need to just sit and listen to? Who is it that God has put in your life that just needs someone to open the door for them to find Jesus and follow him? Because you are a priest. If you're stumbling over that today, if that idea is like a rock that's tripping you up, then I want you to spend some time just praying. Because if you say, I follow Jesus, and yet you don't want to go and help others and open a door, and you need to have God open a door for you. Because that means it's being revealed. You've been making Jesus a side thing. And Jesus is saying, I want to be the first thing. But if you're saying, I'm a Jesus follower. He's first in my life. Then I need you to go. I need you to go and be a blessing. God has given us a vision, a mission here at Riverwood. To help invite the spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus. And what we want to see is we want to see at least 10% of the spiritually disconnected connect with their creator. But I'm going to tell you right now, I cannot do it by myself. 
Jeff and I partnered cannot do it by ourselves. We need you. You've got to go and be a priest. This world needs it. They need people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And so please, don't make Jesus a side thing. Don't just make him another rock in your collection. You've got to go and walk the Jesus path uphill to let God shape you and change you so that you will go and do what he's called you to do. So Father, I pray that you would uh, help each of us to see our role. If there's anyone here today that, that does not have a faith in Christ, I pray today would be the day that it changes. Today, they would, they would in, the, in their heart, they would fall on their knees and they would confess, God, I am a sinner. I am separated from you. And yet I am now hearing how you give life, how you want to move me from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, to go from being disconnected from you to being adopted by you and to go from being just another stone along the path to being put into the spiritual house built upon the cornerstone. I pray, Father, that today's the day that changes and they would begin this journey of following Jesus. I pray for anyone who's here today that has not placed their, uh, that knows you, their, their faith is in you, and yet they're realizing they're trying to walk the selfish path at the same time as walking the Jesus path. And it's tripping them up. They're either hurting others or they're hurting themselves or they're doing both. And today you're bringing conviction. Pray, Father, they would confess it. And that as they confess, they would sense your love, your forgiveness, and they would fully surrender to the Jesus path and they'd continue the climb through your power of the Holy Spirit to climb up towards the, the top of Christ's likeness. Lord, I pray for those here who do know you. God, you have called us to be priests. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a people belonging to you. When we were separated from you by our sin, we had no name, we had no connection. And yet now, through Christ, through this gospel, we can know you, follow you, and a call has now been placed upon us for you and your glory. There are people out there who need to see Jesus and they will see him through us. And so God, would you send us to go and open the door so that people can come in and find Jesus and follow him. So Father, empower us to do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.